Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine, in which it's featuring the state of Alaska's Willow Project. Um, you might be familiar with it. It took a long time to get through permitting, a project that ConocoPhillips has invested a lot of time in energy, and it makes a great article to read on why we need energy reform uh, to look at energy. To, wait, to have a solid energy policy uh, is important. So I encourage you to go to shellmag.com to look at the article. It's up now. No. To look at the latest issue of Shell Magazine, if you go to shellmag.com, you can find the article and many more. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest for today, a regular contributor and energy expert, Robert Rapier, who is a chemical engineer by trade and also a senior contributor for magazine and other media outlets. Welcome back to In the Wall Patch Radio Show, Robert. Thanks for having me on again. Well, um, I do enjoy when you come to the, you know, come back on the radio and talk to us because you really kind of tend to break things down in a way that's palatable for most of us. When we talk about energy, it's extremely complicated. Um, most people hear terminology and they're not sure what that is. Um, and a lot of acronyms everywhere, right? So it's upstream, midstream, downstream. What's the EIA and IPAA and API? And then there's ESG. And so there's a lot. And uh, today's show, I hope that we can accomplish uh, breaking down a lot of what seems to be swirling around uh, politics as far as like Joe Biden's policy, energy policies versus uh, the previous president, President Trump. Um, and you had a lot of visibility uh, on some articles that you put out for Forbes pertaining specifically to energy independence, the differences between the presidents, um, a lot of perception that's out there that uh, President Trump was pro-energy and, and Biden is not. And so you're going to break that down for us too today. So right. I, I want to start with an article that you recently wrote for Forbes, um, and it was titled um, U.S. Energy Independence Source to the Highest Level in Over 70 Years. That got traction on Forbes that nearly hit 12,000 views alone, and it's still climbing. And so basically, in the article, you explain the great debate, if you will, that seems to be going on uh, if the United States is energy independent or are we not energy independent. So start from there. Okay. So, yeah, whenever someone talks about energy independence, I always try to get them to define their terms because people are people mean one of two things. When people say Trump made us energy independent, I know they're talking about one thing. If they say we're not energy independent and we haven't been in 70 years. I know they're talking about a different thing. So here are the two here are the two ways to think about energy independence. One is that we are self-sufficient in energy. And that means we produce more energy than we use. So in that case, you could say, well, we're self-sufficient in energy. Um, and that's the that is the definition people are using when they say we became energy independent under Trump. Under Trump, we produced more energy than we used. And I'll, I'll get into I'll get into that why that was, what happened. Um, but but let me talk about now the second definition. The second definition says um you you don't import any energy. 
Now, we've imported energy since the 1940s at least so and, and, and have consistently. So if somebody says energy independence means we don't import ener- any energy, we have not been energy independent. We weren't under Trump. We weren't at any time since uh, before World War II. We were not energy independent. Now, I don't like that definition very much because a lot of the energy we import we we simply uh, refine it and then export the finished product. So a lot of energy we import is just for economic reasons. Um, we produce a lot of light, sweet crude oil from fracking that isn't a good fit for our refineries. And so in 2015, a law was changed that allowed that inter- that oil to be exported. Before that, we had a we had a ban on oil exports. So now a U.S. producer can export that oil. And a U.S. refiner who wants heavy sour crude because they've made the investments to process that crude can instead import that oil, which is better for their economics. And you say, okay, if they're doing that, we're not energy independent by the definition of importing energy. But I mean, imagine you're self-sufficient in food. You make 10 times as much food as you need, but you import some you know, items from different countries that you can't grow here. Are you food independent? Well, you're self-sufficient, certainly, if you're making 10 times what you need. So I like the definition that says we produce more than we use, because if worse came to worse, we could be completely independent. We could cut off all the expo- all the imports, and we are producing as much as we, we use, more. And the, the in that article for Forbes, uh, the Energy Information Administration just released the numbers for 2022. And what they show is in 2022, we had more excess production over consumption than at any time since the EIA has tracked those numbers, which started in the 1950s. So that's the reason I said energy independence soars to the highest level. Our excess energy production was at the highest level since the 1940s. Now, it's true. This is true. We did hit that we, we converted from a net importer of energy to a net exporter in 2019 when Trump was in office. But we had been marching toward that since 2005. When the fracking boom hit, we started producing a lot more oil, a lot more natural gas, and our net imports declined year after year after year. And between 20, 2005 and the time Trump entered office, they were already down 75%. So The trend line was very strong. We were marching toward energy independence. And so when people say, well, does Trump deserve any credit? I say, well, one thing he did, and and I can graph this and show it, he probably pushed that date up. So when Trump came into office, the move started to increase. So I would say that we were on a trend line to hit energy independence by the definition we produce more than we use about 2022, maybe last year. And we hit it in 2019. So I would say Trump's policies probably helped accelerate that. Uh, we were going to hit that. I mean, that, that Trump Trump didn't make us energy independent. He may have he may have sped it up, but he didn't make us energy independent. We're we're still on that trend line. We're probably going to continue to grow that, regardless of who's president. It may grow faster under some presidents than others, but you know we're on that trend line. But you know when I, some of the objection, we we can get into the responses. Um, you know, there were a number of objections. <laughs> we What's that? Later. I yeah. said we will later on in the show. Um, well, you know, you kind of, I think what you sparked the debate on was uh, in the article, it talks about uh, who achieved better, President Trump 
or did Biden lose our energy independence? I think that's what kind of uh, started the whole great debate. But you also go on into the article and you, you, you discuss, you know, are we really, by the definition of what President Trump has done, what Biden continues to do, because my understanding from you is that both presidents have been energy independent or, or pro-energy to some degree. So for the for the you know right leaning people who are pro Trump supporters, you know Biden has messed up the energy policy. You're you're explaining why that's not true. That well, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. I, I think Biden has made a lot of mistakes in energy policy, and and I think we could be going even faster than we are. I think Biden messed up on the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, I think he has messed up on on putting some places off limits to oil exploration. Um, I, I think he's messed up by uh, you know, he's basically is has hostile energy policies toward U.S. oil producers. And then he goes asking Saudi Arabia and Venezuela to pump more oil, which is ridiculous. I mean, you, you go meet with the U.S. producers and you say, you know, how can I make your job easier? What can we do to boost production here? So but, but my point is this for anybody who says Trump made us energy independent and Biden lost it. That's not true. By the definition of we produce more than we use. We have done that every year now since 2019. And 2022 was the largest excess that we've ever seen, again, since at least the 40s, when, when EIA only tracks back to the 50s. So I don't really know how far back you'd have to go. But mm -hmm. I would say that's not an endorsement of Biden's energy policies. It's just the trend. I mean, somebody said, who is responsible? George Mitchell, the father of fracking, is responsible here. I mean, he is ultimately the person who did more than any other politician to put us on this trajectory toward energy independence. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter who was in office. If uh, if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, we were still marching toward energy independence. We probably wouldn't have hit it as quickly. We would have probably hit it again, 2022, 2023, maybe. So Trump came in, had very pro-energy policies, and there is an inflection point that moved us there faster. But I'm just trying to correct misconceptions. When somebody says, you know, I, two things can be true. Biden can have hostile energy policies toward U.S. energy producers, and yet the underlying trend was still so great that we still managed to maintain our energy independence. And so, and people get upset about that. And they say, oh, you're defending Biden. I'm not defending Biden. I've, tracked, I've attacked Biden's energy policies many times. Um, but the, the fact is the underlying trend was so great that it doesn't matter who was in office. It that only swings the needle a little back and forth. You know, you move there faster or slower depending on who was in office. But we were steadily marching toward that goal. Well, Robert, let's back up a little bit though, too, because there's also, you know, when you talk about the data between the two administrations, it's being tracked. You mentioned the EIA, which is the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Drill down a little bit more for our listeners to understand this data. This agency consists of somewhat independent. It's very hard for them. In other words, if there's a listener thinking, yeah, well, Biden's in office now and he's, uh, you know, messing with the numbers or 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 they are uh, miscalculating how convenient that, that's not necessarily true. Explain. Oh, that would be that that would be effectively impossible. I mean, the, the EIA has employees that are career employees and some are Democrats and some are Republicans. Tremendous number of people handle this data out with, with the different presidents and right, across different presidents. I mean, some of the people in the EIA right now worked for under Trump and they worked under Obama. They, they're career employees. 
and uh, some are Democrats, some are Republicans. The head is Democrat right now, the head of the agency. But the way this works is oil companies send in their numbers on a, a weekly basis. You know, I used to work in an oil refinery and we'd have to send in our numbers on a weekly basis. This is where our inventories are and this is how much we moved and this is the product that came in and this is what went out. And you have thousands of data points getting sent into the EIA every week and it would take a massive conspiracy to fake the data. And, and then if you did manage to fake the data, next administration comes along, that would all be uncovered. So it's not a it's not something that you could really pull off. Um, so so the notion that they're faking the numbers just is incredible. I mean, the numbers are still on the trend. The trend's been there since 2005. I mean, you can track. We had an all time high net energy import in 2005. And every year after that, we just ticked steadily down, 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 down as the shale oil and shale gas ramped up rapidly. Let's take a quick break right. and listen to an oil patch radio show. And we're back. You're listening to Envelope Patch Radio Show. My guest today is our one of our regular contributors and energy expert, Robert Rapier. Uh, Robert, before the break, you we were discussing an article that you produced for Forbes. It had over 12,000 views and climbing. It's also kind of turned you into a trending um, TikTok star, if you will, which we'll get into that a little bit later on in the show. But for our listeners, a lot has happened in 10 to 12 years. The Shell Revolution if you will, came to North America. And it kind of changed the way things have been done since the 70s. Uh, we remember in the 70s, we thought we were running out of, of fruit. And unfortunately, it, it led to some really bad things that as a child, I remember waiting in lines three, four hours long in Houston, Texas, trying to get uh, gas in our cars. Um, right. And it wasn't a really pretty sight. It, it shows what happens when societies start uh, running out of uh commodities that we absolutely need, like gasoline and uh, food and shortages and stuff. Anyway, that's another story, another show. Uh, but let's back up because I want you to give the listeners an understanding of, well, how did we lift the band, ban? How did fracking begin, if you will? So, so our listeners have some understanding of where we are today when you say, are we energy independent or are we not? Take us back of how we okay. are, where, how we got so, here. So so we need to go back to about 2000 and, and George Bush was in office and he had very pro oil policies. Um, he was an oil man and people considered him an oil man and his vice president was an oil man. And yet our oil production fell every year he was in office. But what was happening in the background is fracking. Fracking has been around a long time and horizontal drilling has been around a long time. But for the first time, People like George Mitchell, who's called the father of fracking, they combined horizontal drilling with fracking. And that opened up oil resources, which hadn't been economical to produce, and natural gas resources. For the first time, it made them economical to produce. And so what you saw is during the Bush administration, this was being developed, and you saw our decline in oil production slow down, and you actually saw our natural gas production start to tick higher. And by the time Obama came into office, the fracking boom was just on the cusp of really uh, producing results. And so I always tell people the great irony is Obama had fairly hostile policies with the oil and gas industry. He did not have a good relationship with them. And yet he sat 
on the largest expansion. He presided over the largest expansion of oil and natural gas production in history. And so I always tell people, you know, it's not the what's happening in the macro, you know, is more important than who's sitting in the office. I mean, um, if if George Bush had had could have run for eight more years, he would have seen that. And maybe it would have even been faster because he would have been had more pro oil policies. But the developments that happened when he was in office led to the boom that Obama presided over. So, you know, people I, it's it's hugely ironic, but it's it's a fact that Obama is is a presider over the largest expansion in history. Now, you ask about the export ban. One of the things that happened is as shale oil production ramped up, uh, we started to find uh, we had bottlenecks, domestic bottlenecks, because over the years, as U.S. production declined, U.S. refiners had invested in in uh, processing heavier and sour crude oils. And what was coming out of the shale fields was light and sweet. Now, a refiner can can actually process light and sweet, but they don't make as much money because it costs more. And so um, there was a situation where, you know, oil, oil producers really wanted to be able to export that oil and get better prices. And oil refiners wanted to be able to import uh, heavier oil. But they were being held hostage. The U.S. producer being held hostage and they were try- having to accept deep discounts on their oil for refiners to accept it. When if they could have sold it on the open market, it's worth a lot more money. So in 2015, Obama made a deal and he got a bunch of the green policies that he wanted and and one of the things Republicans got was a lift on the oil export ban. And that allowed the fracking boom to continue because now there's open markets and U.S. producers can actually start exporting their oil. That was a very important thing that happened that allowed the shale boom to continue because it was it, it was the market was becoming saturated. It was domestic market only and it was becoming really saturated. And that export ban being lifted uh, which Obama didn't want, but he got it as part of the negotiation. And that really helped the boom continue. Well, you know, to, to the listeners and, and, you know, all of us that are sitting back and seeing such gridlock in D.C., there it has been for years. But to see that ban get through because the Democrat Party got what they wanted and the Republican Party got what they wanted, we have an upcoming event happening uh, Monday in Corpus Christi, in which the president of the largest world, uh, the largest oil and gas trade association in the world, Mike Summers, president, is coming in to talk specifically about energy reform, and and that we need it, and and it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. But you know, your conclusion in your article, um, and and seeing that we can still get some solid energy policies passed if we choose to uh, roll up our sleeves and try to work together. You need something, we need something. But also, Robert, explain to me the conclusion of your article in Forbes. Uh, because next, when we come back from break, I want to uh, talk about you. You have now become a star on TikTok. But what was the conclusion? Because I think our listeners are still, well, is Biden uh, pro-energy? Did did Trump really give us energy independence? What does the EIA say pertaining to these numbers? Um, are they both actually responsible for continuing to keep energy independence here in the United States? And we haven't lost our energy independence at all. I'd, I, so what I would say is that uh, Trump helped a little. We were going to make it to the goal. So it's like running a marathon and we're, we're almost we're three quarters of the way through. And, uh, you know, Trump gave a little boost and got us there a little faster. Uh, Biden hasn't done the energy in, the energy industry a lot of favors 
but that underlying trend was still something that uh, um, has pushed us to greater and greater levels. And, and somebody said, hey, how can we be soared to the greatest level of energy independence? We're either energy independent or we're not. And I, again, I say, well, how are you defining it? Because you're defining it in a way that is measurable. And if you say, well, we've reached this measure because of this measurement, and next year that measurement's even higher, then yes, you could have a higher level of energy independence. Um, so it's not a binary, either we are or we aren't. We are by some measure. And so mm -hmm. I would say that regardless of who was in office, we were going to get there because of fracking. Um, and Trump's policies may have got us there a little bit faster. I, I would say I think the graph shows that. I think the graph shows an inflection point around uh, 2017, 2018 that actually boosted our production and uh, got us there a bit faster. So we're going to take a quick break, but for our listeners who want to look at this article, read the article, go to Forbes, they can type in Robert Rapier, your article will come up and they can read it. Uh, but you don't want to miss uh, the next part. We're halfway through the show. We're going to talk about when we come back from break. You're a star on TikTok because of this article. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. You're listening to an old patch radio show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to In the Little Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, an energy expert with us, also a chemical engineer. And Robert, you write for numerous media outlets. Forbes is one, but there are several major media outlets you write for. Um, and when you released this article in Forbes that, as I said earlier in the show, received over 12,000 uh, hits on reading a, an article that is titled U.S. Energy Independence Source to the Highest Level in 70 Years, you uh, got a lot of, um, of of hits off of that article, off of that title, but you also became quite famous on TikTok. In your article uh, that you kind of met, wrote an additional piece in Forbes, at that time you had over 2,000 views. Um, and I'm not really sure because I'm not on TikTok. Um, are these people informed in the way of energy? Uh, what was the, first of all, your... Uh, your thoughts on, um, gee, 2,000 views. Somebody wrote about the article you wrote in Forbes and it hit TikTok in a video. So tell us about that, but what were the comments as well? So here's here's what's funny. Um, the, the Forbes article itself, you know, I, a lot of my, a lot of energy articles, period, only get, you know, maybe 1,000 views. And uh, I've had some get a million views before, but, but 12,000 views, that's a lot for a Forbes article. But then it gets republished, and even some of the places it gets republished gets a lot more views than what it got on Forbes in the first place. And there's a guy on TikTok. People told me about him a lot. He's an oil and gas guy. Uh, he's an executive of, at a, I think, a small oil company in Oklahoma. So I come from Oklahoma as well. So uh, um, I, people have told me about this guy on TikTok, and he's always answering energy questions. And somebody messaged me after my Forbes article and said, hey, this guy mentioned your Forbes article on uh, TikTok, and I just checked, and that that mention and discussion has two hundred thousand views on TikTok. So, so okay. two hundred thousand two hundred thousand people have viewed that uh, guy's mention on TikTok, and he's pointing out. He said, "These are the things I've been telling you all. This energy independence business. If we measure it like this, we are getting higher and higher and higher, and it's not the situation that a lot of people have said where." where we lost it now under Biden. And he went on to say some of the things that he has said that I reiterated in that article. 
And so I, I don't know how many comments there are now, but there were more than 2000, uh, you know, shortly after it was uh, it was posted. And I went through and I sorted through and I looked at some of the comments and I said, OK, I will answer some of these comments in a follow up. And then I wrote a follow up article for Forbes where I just took some of the more common comments and I, I answered them. For example, a lot of people said, uh, if we're energy independent, why am I still paying five dollars a gallon for gasoline? That was pretty yeah. common. And that's a that's a fair question. And so I answered it. The answer is, uh, unless you live in California, you shouldn't be paying five dollars a gallon, but you're still paying an elevated price. Keep in mind, energy production is only one part of the supply demand equation globally. And, and because of the export ban now, we're a global market with with oil and gas globally. Demand has grown and OPEC has cut production. So that impacts U.S. oil prices, it impacts gasoline prices. So, you know, if uh, an example I give, I said, you know, if we expanded production by 10%, but demand went up by 20%, you'd see higher prices, even though we increased uh, production. And that's sort of what's happened. We've seen a, a growth in production, but stronger global growth in demand and a cut by OPEC. So that's why gas prices are still high. So, so that was why, that was one of the common questions that came up. Uh, one was just people saying, I simply don't believe it. They would say BS. Well, the numbers are what they are. I mean, I, I can't, I, I can't, right. uh, you know, just go to the numbers, look at them. If you want to argue that the Energy Information Administration is a partisan organization, that that's that's ridiculous. I mean, it it has gone across administration after administration for, you know, back back for, for decades. Um this is not something where they're faking the numbers. I mean, the, the trend has been clear. Since since Bush was in office, the trend has been clear. When one administration after another, we've been marching toward that. So for people who just say BS, I say go look at the numbers. And, you know, the only objection you can possibly have is I don't believe the EIA. And so now you're in conspiracy territory. And, and that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, we're not going to get into that one. Now, now one uh, question people people did ask, they said, didn't we produce more oil under Trump? And just before COVID, we hit 13 million barrels a day. We still haven't reached that number again. And if not for COVID, we would have set a new oil production record in 2020. We set one in 2019. We may very well set one this year, but we're still a ways from that monthly record of um, uh, that we hit under Trump in like November 2019. And, and, you know, that is something that when we get back from break, I want to talk about was how did COVID affected? It just completely dropped out the oil demand supply. It, it completely disrupted everything. I want our listeners to understand why we are experiencing what we're still continuing to experience, regardless of who's in office. Um, and also, I want to cover, um, well, if we if you're going to declare that Trump, you know, uh, made us energy independent. I want to know then, why are we still importing oil or why are we still importing anything? So it has a lot to do with the EIA and it has a lot to do with COVID. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to an old patch radio show. We'll be right back. And we're back here listening to on the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, an energy expert, chemical engineer, and also a writer for Forbes, you're a senior contributor at Forbes. Also, you write for many other major media outlets as well. Robert, we've talked about an article that you released uh, to Forbes or wrote for Forbes, excuse me, and it caused a lot of activity 
um, with other media outlets, as well as with you. You became somewhat famous on TikTok. You now are approaching over 200,000 views on TikTok. The, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the article, U.S. Energy Independence Source to its Highest Level in 70 Years, has certainly gotten, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of opinions. A question I have is, in your article, the uh, release that you, the article you wrote afterwards, answering some of the TikTok comments and trying to clear the air, if you will, a lot of the information and data that you write about is coming specifically from the EIA, which we already talked about. This is real data. Look it up. It's kind of hard to fudge those numbers. But if we go with the Trump actually... Um, gave us energy independence, then, excuse me, then why are we still importing oil? Right. And so even when we attained, quote unquote, energy independence under Trump, we were still importing 9 million barrels a day of oil. So, so we never stopped importing oil. Um, and that's what I tell people when if when if they do say, you know, Trump made us energy independent, I say two things. Well, he didn't make us that. We were trending toward that because of fracking. Uh, but number two, we were still importing, you know, across his across the four years, I think we averaged eight or nine million barrels a day of oil imports. So we never stopped that. And so I like to get people's minds around definitions of energy dependence. What are you really talking about? And if you're talking about we don't import oil, then Trump, we didn't attain energy independence under Trump. So then explain how come, I think a lot of questions that also came out <clears throat> was why we talked about higher energy prices, higher gas prices. And so I guess I want to understand a little bit about these things keep fluctuating. People attribute it to who's ever in office. Right. Is that necessarily true? So uh, whoever's in office can can move the needle a little bit one way or the other. But, you know, I in, in my book that I published in 2012, I, one of the things I said is who is in office, they, they move the needle a little bit, but the underlying macro factors are far more important. I mean, what OPEC does is far more important than who's sitting in the office in the U.S. Fracking, I mean, just dwarfed anything that a president could possibly do to help energy independence. And the other thing I point out is, Often, the things that one president does while in office, the policies he enacts, it can take years to see results. And so often, it's the next guy who benefits. And one of the classic examples is Richard Nixon approving the Alaska pipeline and clearing out all the legal challenges and making that happen. But it didn't turn on until uh, Carter was in office. And so Carter saw that benefit. He saw that bump in oil production. And so... You know, he could say, oh, look what I did for oil production. But in reality, it was set in place by Nixon before and, and Nixon clearing out the, the all the objections for the Alaska pipeline. And that happens over and over again. You know, fracking was largely developed under Bush, who didn't see those benefits because, you know, it was taking time to develop and, and get some momentum. And, by, and and Obama saw those benefits. So, you know, that, that's it's it's. But some a president can move the needle, but but usually not in the short term, in the longer term. And and usually, you know, the macro factors or the economic factors are more important than what a president's policies are. Correct. And that's why I want you to cover in this segment, because I want to get on to energy reform. Um, so what do you say to people who say that under President Trump and before we went to break, you mentioned mm -hmm. that our numbers still have not returned 
back to where it was in, with President Trump in office. But that had a lot to do with COVID, bottom bringing uh, the energy uh, demand to its knees, if you will, or bottom out, bottoming it out. So, what do you, how did this happen? Explain why, and and it kind of just, I guess tells us that no one president really is responsible. This is a global commodity. So explain right. that to people. Help them to understand. So here's what happened during COVID. Um, at the end of 2019, we had a lot of momentum. We had a lot of rigs out there drilling. Uh, oil production had hit 13 million barrels a day. So we were at the highest monthly level ever. And then in early 2020, the COVID pandemic started to spread across the U.S. And by, by spring, it was, you know, we were in lockdowns. And the lockdowns and the closure of schools and the closure of businesses caused oil demand to plummet. We actually had oil prices close in negative territory one day as people fled. Um, and, and that caused the shutdown of a lot of marginal producers. Some of that is permanent. It caused uh, um, a reduction in production in, in a lot of different producers. It sent some producers into bankruptcy. Uh, we saw a 3 million barrel a day drop in oil production in the course of a, of a month or two back in early 2020. Now, that had devastating implications in the long run because, you know, we did bounce back. Demand did bounce back relatively quickly. But because some of this shutdown, some of the shutdown in production was permanent. I mean, people were just uh, cruising along, just making a little bit of money on some of these stripper wells. And then when the price dropped out, they, they shut them down. And that's and that's it. They don't start them back up. Um, companies that went bankrupt are not necessarily going to start back up and, and run any more wells. So what we saw then was a gradual, we saw a pretty good bounce back from the, the deep plunge, but far, far below the levels that we were at the end of 2019. And since then, production has gradually crept higher. I think we dropped all the way down to 9.9 .9 million barrels a day from 13 in early 2020. And we've steadily climbed back and we have hit 12.4, 12.5 in the last few months. So we're still, you know, five, 600,000 barrels a day short of that monthly record. But throughout the year 2019, you know, we started at lower than that and we ended up at 13. Right now we're on pace. We're on pace through April to set a new record this year, a new annual record. We probably won't hit a new, a new monthly record, but we are on pace to set a new, a new annual record this year. Now, how did, how did energy independence grow then? It's because of natural gas. Natural gas set new records in, in 2021 and 2022. Our LNG exports are exploding, especially into Europe. Um, that's why uh, we are now producing a lot more energy. Uh, we're producing uh, more energy than we use because we're, we're exporting now so much LNG. That's the biggest thing that's happened, even though the oil production is not quite back to where it was in 2019. Right. And, and, and our listeners will, will, will know the invasion uh, into Ukraine and, of course, Europe needing uh, liquefied natural gas. And here we are, the United States exporting it. When we come back from break, um, I want to cover energy reform. Um, but before I, I take us into break, so how does it feel to be a TikTok star? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I'm not the guy that did the video. He just he mentioned me in the video and and uh, and and showed my article. Um, I, I've had people tell me before you should be on TikTok, but I, I don't I, I don't know I, I don't really like 
if I look at that guy, he does videos every single day. And I, I really don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to keep up with all those comments and, and deal with that. So I'm happy to write. No. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to write and, you know, answer occasional queries and, and appear, you know, in the media sometimes, but I don't want to be on TikTok every single day. Yeah, I understand. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to Enola Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, an energy expert, also senior contributor to Forbes. Robert, <clears throat> thank you so much for taking us through a little bit of the history of how uh, presidential presidents do matter in the way of energy. Um, not They can't dictate everything, but they do have some power, not full power. And right. thank you for explaining the differences between uh, what the track record had been from President Trump and President Biden, which looks like we'll be moving into uh, that cycle again, uh, uh, nasty politics, but it looks like they might be going at it again, head to head. But uh, on uh, next week, Mike Summers, the president of American Petroleum, Petroleum Association, or I'm sorry, American Petroleum Institute, better known as API, will be traveling to Corpus Christi to talk to that group about specifically uh, liquefied natural gas and also energy reform. That's a pretty important topic. I don't think we really understand all of why we need energy reform. So I want to back up and, and, and have you explain to us the Shell Magazine cover is covering the uh, Willow Project, which was the project that was in Alaska. And that stayed on the table in permitting far too long. It didn't pass in its current form. It almost killed the project with ConocoPhillips. And it was a per- the reason why Shell Magazine did that article was to show some of the problems. It got barely through. Um, and so let's back up with, let's start with the Willow Project. Let's start with okay, why... Good. What are some of the problems that we see, the Keystone Pipeline? What are some of the problems that we've had because we do not have a solid energy uh, policy or energy reform? Start okay. there. So first, let me, full disclosure, I used to work for ConocoPhillips, so uh, people should know that. I, I worked for them for years in Oklahoma, Montana, and in the North Sea. Um, and I became very familiar with uh, you know, how long it takes to do an energy project. And you know, the problem, and, and Willow, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a good example. <clears throat> Phillips went through the process and they negotiated and they they had a deal and they got their permits in line. And then um, Biden administration and comes in. Money, invested a lot of money and time right. doing first. Okay. Right. And so then the Biden administration comes in and they start trying to renegotiate and force changes in the permit and uh, and, you know, ConocoPhillips wants to, they want, they want them to reduce the number of pads. And, and, and what happens here is this really creates dysfunctional energy policy. I mean, a lot of these projects will span more than a four or eight year presidential term. And, and the, probably the classic example is the Keystone XL pipeline. Keystone XL pipeline should be operational right now. Um, And I think if we were trying to do the Alaska pipeline today, it wouldn't get done because of the same factors that prevented uh, tra- the, the Keystone Pipeline from being from being built. So you have one administration that. Let me let me back up and give some examples. So is it similar? We talked about Keystone. You talked about the Willow Project. Is it similar to a 
someone buying a car, they have it, it's under a contract, they know their terms, they know their payment, they have everything set up, and then all of a sudden, the lender comes back in and wants to renegotiate those terms and change it. Yes. And, and Okay. And so then with that, that being said, no one in, in the United States would stand for that kind of a policy. Right. But then so talk up specifically. So the Willow Project is in Alaska. Alaska is, sits on a lot of federal lands, which is right. where the administration really has uh, the state of Alaska. They want this project. They need this project for their jobs. Explain why. Uh, Alaska, you know, it's not like Texas. Texas doesn't have a lot of federal lands, but Alaska does. And this was a, another example of when you have, or explain the federal lands so so everybody can kind of understand what was Alaska's problem as well. So, yeah, the U.S. owns a lot of federal lands, and there's a lot of oil and gas and coal on those federal lands. Mm-hmm. And states, states have lands, and, and states have uh, their own policies for allowing drilling. Um, you know, Alaska, because it's federal land, they can't dictate terms of drilling. It has to be done, you know, through through federal government. And so um, when you, you have a pro-energy administration, like Trump administration, and they, they mm-hmm. negotiated and they got their terms down, and then and then you have another one comes along. It's it's like you said, except it's even worse. That it's like a lender, you know, if you were trying to buy a car and then the lender comes along and says, I, I don't want to do business with you anymore. And then uh, they replace the lender. And the next guy says, no, no, we'll, we'll do business. Um, we'll do business. And then the next guy says, no, we won't. And it becomes paralyzing. Um, any energy company that wants to do a project that's going to take a dozen years is terrified of that. And, and it's not just oil and gas. It's on both sides. If, you, if you've got a green energy project, you've got a massive green energy project, and and this is what I said when McCarthy recently, you know, he proposed the uh, uh, some some reforms that would eliminate a lot of those tax credits. And so if you're a green energy producer and you're counting on those to pay you out for the next 10 or 15 years and suddenly that gets taken off the table. Now you're paralyzed. You're like, I can't afford to invest in a project that's going to take 10 years to see the light of day. And so. It causes us to produce less energy than we could produce, and it costs. It, it really paralyzes the energy companies. Uh, politics very problematic for energy companies, and so some energy reform. I don't know how you do it, but we need to have more consistency across administrations. You know, if the administration has negotiated a deal, uh, you know, Keystone, you know, they worked for years and years and years. And then Obama said, "Nope, gonna not gonna do it," even though all of the um, uh, you know, all of the assessments were positive. Everything was good. They Keystone did everything they were asked to do. And then Obama says, nope. And then Trump comes back in and says, yep, we're going to sign an executive order, speed this up. And then four years later, uh, Biden comes in and says, nope. I, I, I mean, you can't you can't do business like that. No, I mean, think about it. If you have a company and you're making decisions for five years out and then you get a new president and they tell you that this isn't going to work. Um, how do you raise capital? for these long-term investments. And at the end of the day, the reason I believe energy reform is important is because the American people, if we don't have it and we can't get these projects off the ground, we're not going to be able to produce the product as much. And it comes back to what? Back to paying higher prices or back to not having enough. And we're back in the same cycle. Do you think energy reform will pass in some form? 
and maybe I, build I mean, off? I, I don't know. We we have, we tend to pass a major energy bill every you know four years or, or eight years. Um, I won't be surprised uh, to see, but I don't see how you address the consistency across administrations, which I think is the biggest single underlying issue, just that the next guy can come along and just mm-hmm. overturn everything that you know was put in place under the previous administration on long-term projects. And I, I don't know how you fix that. Well, that, I think the way we would fix it is as the same time we're taking on energy reform, let's take on the political reform that we need to by who is giving the most money to campaigns that they're actually looking at. Are we going to be green or are we going to be anti-oil? Are we going to be anti-green? I think it just needs reform, period. Um, so we can start looking at consistency, but that's just Kim's opinion. Robert, thank you so much for joining me today on In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and I look forward to having you back next month when I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about energy reform and, of course, Energy 101. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.